So there was a fellow um, on top of his roof, a second story home, putting up a television antenna. That lets you know how long ago this story was. It was large, tall, he was trying to attach the guy wires from the antenna to a section of the roof and the wind was blowing, making it even more difficult. Suddenly he began to slip. And he slid down the roof until he caught himself on this little metal rain gutter. And he went around the eaves of the second floor and he was holding on for dear life and he, he, he was panicking. And he just screamed, he just screamed up to the heavens. And he said this, he said, isn't there anybody up there who can help me? And a voice from heaven came and said, I can help you. Well, what shall I do? And the voice said, let go, and I'll catch you. And the man said, is there anyone else up there who can help me? <laughs> I know you know the feeling, like, don't ask anything crazy of me. Sometimes God's commands give us that feeling like, why do you ask this stuff from me? Why do you ask me to do stuff like this? I remember um, one day a while back, I was struggling in a relationship with, with another individual, and, and it was dead of winter. And I went outside, and, and I was looking at my vehicle, and, and man, we got all this snow and ice, and I'm, I had to scrape off my windshield, and I'm scraping, and it was just caked on. And it's taken me forever, and I'm probably about 10 minutes going around my car, just scrape and scrape and scrape and scrape. And I'm just getting done with my car, and I look over, and wouldn't you know it, there's the car of the individual that I'm struggling in my relationship with. And you know what ends up going into my mind? And I'm like, God, why are you telling me this? Why are you asking me to go over to that person's car and scrape it off? And then I start to pray, oh Lord, help him come out soon. And then he could do his own car. And he didn't come out. So I walked over there. Why, why does God ask us to do things that don't always make sense? Why would he require things of us? We ask, well, turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel 6. You know, we're going through this account with David what a life. And God had taken him through so many different things. And if you don't mind, we're jumping a few chapters, or I'm never going to finish this series. And, and he's gone through so many things. He finally, after 22 years, ends up being king of all of Israel, 22 years after God's promise to him, king over all of Israel. And then 
in all of this, he goes to get the Ark of the Covenant back. And here's where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So David had conquered Jerusalem. David had defeated the Philistines. And he says, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to get the ark back. And so with 30,000 men, he goes to do the extremely important work of bringing this ark, the symbol of the presence of God, back to Jerusalem, back to the heart of Israel. And I'm not sure if you know the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. And maybe this is a bit new for some of us. Um, maybe whenever we think of the Ark, we think about, you know, this guy up here on the screen. Maybe this is our vision of the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe this is about as far as our theology goes of the whole thing. Um, maybe for some of you younger people, you're like, who in the world is that guy? Let me give you a little taste of what the ark meant to the people of Israel. Because once back in the Garden of Eden, like Adam and Eve, the Bible says, walked personally with God. Can you imagine that? It talked about in the cool of the day, God would walk personally with, in fellowship, like have conversation. And here they would walk through the garden together. There was that kind of camaraderie and connection that God and man had. And then because of sin, there was a splinter and there was this faction. And, and we knew that it would be repaired because Messiah would come. But there was a problem. And God's presence was no longer with man. And so then later on in Exodus chapter 25, God says, I'm going to do something special. And God gave them some of the greatest words they could ever hear. And God told Israel, I want you to build, I want you to build a tabernacle. And here's what he said. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, and my presence, people, my presence is going to dwell with you. Now, friends, that was music to their ears. My presence. And then he says, then I want you to, to build this ark. And he tells them the exact dimensions, and this is going to be a symbol of my presence and my power that would be with you. You know, what, what food to their starving souls? God commanded them to build the ark according to very specific Directions, and then he says, you know, there above the cover between the two cherubim are over the ark of the testimony, and I will meet with you. Can you, since the Garden of Eden, this hadn't happened. He says, I will meet with you. Yes. That's the awesomeness, the holiness, the majesty of God dwelt right there between the cherubim on that sacred ark, and until Jesus Christ came to earth, the ark was the sacred center of God's glory and his presence. And now David and his men said, you know what? We are going back there, and we're going to pick that ark up, and we're going to bring it back to Jerusalem because God's presence is going to dwell with us once again. This is how 
big that was. This is how significant that was to them. So here's the lesson. Here's the statement um, about the ark from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And through this, we're going to see three big lessons about God from the ark of the covenant in this account. But let me just read for you 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 7. It'll be up on the big screen if you don't have it in front of you. Here's what it says. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baal in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, which, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of the God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act therefore god struck him down and he died there beside the ark of god wow now some of you may be saying that that doesn't make any sense god they're bringing the ark back to jerusalem and it's about to tip off of this cart and Uzzah just reaches out to keep it from falling and you kill him Like, what? That makes no sense with what you're doing. I'm going to tell you, it's going to make perfect sense in just a minute. Here's a few things that this text teaches us about God. Number one, God always deserves our respect. God always deserves our respect Now you talk about a massive shift of emotion because these people are partying at this point in time. They are celebrating, rejoicing, they're dancing, they're singing. Every instrument from the band is out there when they are bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and Uzzah, boom, is struck dead by the Lord right in the midst of all of it. And Uzzah's death would have been a shock under any circumstances, but imagine the shock in such midst of the celebration and i'm sure we all have questions like why in the world would there have been this kind of an action on the part of god from what Uzzah did that just doesn't make any sense at this point in time he just he tried to do what was right he tried to keep it from falling well the text has a number of clues let's just let's just work right down through them really quick look at verse three In chapter 6, verse 3 mentions that they set the ark on a new cart. You see that right there? They set the ark on a new cart. Verse 6 mentions that the cart was being pulled by oxen. And verse 3 and 4 mention that Uzzah and Ahio were two men 
who were guiding the cart. Now, I need to back this whole thing up for us for just a moment. The Ark of the Covenant was designed by God in Exodus chapter 25. I, I want to show you just an artist's rendition of what the Ark looked like. So here's, here's a pic of kind of what they um, assume by the descriptions in Scripture of what it looked like. So imagine this box with large round rings on the two sides, and through those rings were these long poles. Now God masterfully designed for the transportation of his glory to literally rest upon the shoulders of his revealing priests. I just want to read for you from Ezekiel chapter 25. This is how God set up for the ark to be carried from Ezekiel 20, um, Exodus 25. He mentions, have an ark made of Acadia wood. And he goes on down, he says, insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark. And then here's the words, to carry it, to carry it. So the, the ark was to be carried it was to be carried by priests. His under-shepherds were to grasp the poles. They were to walk the ark to its next, definition, uh, next destination. It was not cargo to be pulled by oxen. And so when the Philistines came and they took the ark, this is basically how they took it. They threw it onto a cart. They pulled it by the cattle. And it all started wrongly. And then this is basically what David did. When they went to bring it back, they had 30,000 men. You would think they would have had enough guys to carry it back. But instead they went ahead and they threw it on a cart and they pulled it by cattle. Now I'm going to show you, there was something that I discovered yesterday that absolutely blew my mind. I do my garbage through the green company here locally. I don't know if you do as well. And my family's so big. We have nine in our family. I have not just a recycle and a trash bin. I have a recycle and two trash bins. All winter long. And my driveway is about 200 to 250 feet long. All winter long. Through all the snow. You know what I've been doing? One down, go back through, through the snow. Two down, three down. And then when they get it, the next day, bring them all back. Yesterday, blew my mind. I was coming back from the store, and I saw a man with his F-150 pickup truck. Don't laugh at me. And he hooked up, I don't even know how he did it. He hooked up one of his green bins to his back bumper and he was driving it back up to his house. And you want to know how long his driveway was? About 50 feet. <laughs> I thought, what have I been doing this whole winter? Because we all want to do things easier, don't we? Like, why do we want to do it harder? So here's David and his men. Why do we want to carry the ark? 
Let's do like the Philistines did. Put it on a, put it on some deck. Let's let the cattle pull it. Work smarter, not harder. And God woke them up in a big way, friends. They wanted God's blessing. We want the ark. We want God's blessing. This is going to be great. God, we want your presence. And you know what? And we want it on our terms. We want it easier. We want it to be the way that we want it to be. And this moment for David and his men was a major wake-up call. If I could just be plain, God said, don't, don't treat me like the Philistines did. Don't treat me like a box. The ark is not a prize, it's my presence. It's me. I set up standards for how you handle me. I set up standards for how this is to work. And you don't come up with your easy way and expect my blessing. And God, in an instant, recalibrated everything. Does our thinking need some recalibration? I know we all want God's blessing. And sometimes we want God's blessing, but we don't really want to do it his way. Sometimes our respect for God isn't to the level where we want to adjust our lives really to do things according to his way to come out with his blessing. We still have our intended way first. Just going to mention a few things. Respect for God is seen in, uh, here's a few things. Sometimes it's even with, um, with heaven. We want to go to heaven, but then some people say, you know what, but I, I, I still think it's by my church attendance. I still think it's by my works. I still think it's by if I take communion, or I still think it's by if I give, or I still think it's by my family heritage, whatever it may be, you know, these are things I think I get myself in. I've lived a good life. I've done a lot of good things. I still think I get in this way. And let me just share with you, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Operative words, no one. And so the reality is, just like with the ark, God, I want your blessings. And he says, okay, then you need to do it my way. No one comes to the Father except by Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's our behavior. 
Here's the reality. Sometimes it's our behavior. You say, you know what, I, God, I want your blessing. God, I want you to bless my marriage. Well, then how you act with your wife or with your husband, how you treat your children, that's critical. We can't make excuses. Sometimes it's with our speech. God, I want your blessing. Well, you know, the Bible says if anyone thinks he's religious but can't keep a tight rein on his tongue, the Bible says your religion is worthless. And for those that swim in the cesspool of slander and gossip but think they're religious Bent is pure. It doesn't work that way. Or our thoughts. Respect for God is seen even in our thoughts. Pride in self and respect for God are oil and water. And we must say with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. And so the whole idea of God is, you know what? We want his presence. We want his blessing But we need to be careful that we do things the way he intended them to be done all the way through. Here's number two. I need to keep moving. Not only do we look at this and see that God always deserves our respect, number two, God is not harsh. He's holy. It's interesting because when David saw Uzzah die, he said, okay, you know what? Um, You can keep the ark. I don't want the ark. The ark is just a dangerous thing. And, and so here, um, he, the, the account goes on and he says, you know what, um, verse nine, David was afraid of the Lord that day and he says, you know what, I don't want the ark. And so uh, he was not willing to take it, verse 10. And instead he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He said, here you go, Obed-Edom. You can have this thing. I don't want it anymore. Well, interestingly enough, it ended up going along. He, he finds out that the Lord, verse 12, the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he had. So it's not just that God is this harsh being and wants to torch everyone. David ended up realizing, you know, the problem wasn't the ark. The problem was him. The problem was how they were handling God. And so When they realize God isn't harsh, he's holy. And David learned something about God in that. David learned the reality, God doesn't need anger management, I need obedience management. God was still blessing people, the ark was still the place of his presence and favor. God wanted obedience to his commands. He wanted respect for who he is. He deserved that all along. And so David honored God's holiness. And what was ironic here, he set up the priests. This is so neat. So, so this next pick was one. This is just a, a, a pick of, um, of a carving of David now bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And so different from the first time with the, with the ark on a cart with the oxen pulling it, 
What David did, the text tells us, is he had the priests now carry the ark. And it says this, they would walk six steps and then David would do a sacrifice. They would walk six steps, David would do another sacrifice. I think David got the picture. He wanted to revere God and respect him all the way through. David understand this was not God having a fit. To treat the ark inappropriately was to treat God inappropriately, and he knew that God still loved him, wanted to bless him, but he had to respect God's holiness and obey his commands. Here's the big idea from this. God blesses, but it's on his terms. God blesses, but it's on his terms. I want to give you the last thing, and we're going to finish with this. God deserves our unreserved worship. God deserves our unreserved worship, starting in verse 16 on down. Finally, David ends up bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and David didn't look too presidential or kingly when he did. The text mentions in verse 16 on down, It says, as the ark was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now, I don't know exactly what this looked like. And for the sake of my children's self-esteem, I'm not going to even try anything in front of you. Some of the despise on Michael's part may have had something to do with her dad being Saul. And David was restoring something that her dad had lost. It's possible. But certainly David did not look very presidential through this. And the reality is, he didn't care. He did not care one bit. In fact, he mentioned down here, when she called him out on it. She mentioned to him, verse 20, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. This is husband and wife talking today. David said to Michael, verse 21, it was before the Lord. She said it was before the servant girls. He said it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Probably not the best thing to say to your wife. Or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. I don't know the interchange between them. I don't know how much was motivated by her angst with her dad's kingdom going down. 
And there was even some other marital things in play in this that I'm not going to go into right now. But I do know one thing. David didn't care as much what other people thought. He wanted to worship God for his blessing. It was interesting that um, the king with all of his robes was just in a ephod. He didn't have an ephod. He didn't have royal robes. He didn't have distinguished mannerisms. He was just kind of stripped down, utter abandonment, and worship to God. He wasn't being disrespectful. Didn't sound like his worship came from his attire. It didn't come from being presidential. A couple thoughts I had about our worship to God. Worship is not attached to a cultural level. Michael was trying to say that. You weren't very high culture on this thing. And he said, you know what? It doesn't matter. Can I just remind us? I know that we have a lot of neat things up here. Worship happens in Africa with people in grass skirts, in huts. Worship happens in ghettos, in high-rises, Happens in the Hamptons. My growing up church, where I spent the first 16 years of my church experience, was in a trailer. My church was a trailer. And they took out all of the interior partitions. And our offering plates, you ready for this? You remember the five-gallon peanut butter buckets? Remember those? I don't know why they don't make those anymore. Those were our offering buckets. Not very high culture, folks. And we worshiped God. Worship isn't attached to a culture. It's not more spiritual if it's high culture. It's attached to your heart. And that's what God sees. Here's the second thing I see from Michael and David's exchange. Don't let others squash your heart before the Lord. I don't like David's response from a marital standpoint. So husbands, please, do not look at this and take your marital advice on how to reply to your wife. But I do like it on the side where he understood. Ultimately, it's what God sees that counts, not how people perceive you. And truly, so much of Christianity is perception-driven today. What did people think? 
How did people feel about that? Did they approve of it? When in reality, what did God think? What did he feel about that? Did he approve? And he said, I only care what God thinks. I did this for God. I don't care if I'm more undignified in the future. I'll humiliate myself if I have to. It's like the one individual who um, mentioned after a worship service, someone came up to him and said, I didn't like that song you sang. I don't know if I approve of this response, but the individual replied and said, that's okay. We weren't singing to you anyways. Reminds me of another person who was ridiculed for her worship. She broke it. How shocking. How controversial. Was everyone doing it? No. She did it all by herself. Then the obvious happened. All the contents from the inside were released. She could never hug her precious nard to herself again. What took a year's paycheck to purchase was forever gone. Never ever to be recovered but they were poured on Jesus. The need for Christians everywhere, and no one is exempt, is to be broken. The vase to be smashed. Christians need to let the contents out to fill the room with sweetness. And the congregation will be all broken shards mingling together for the first time, no matter what the ridicule is from those around. And if we know one another as broken people, you're ready to get on with the church service, willing to give God what is on the inside. So become less concerned about what others think of your worship and more riveted on what God thinks about your worship. Someone comes to you like Michael and criticizes your genuine worship of God. Don't let it stop. Do it for the Lord. I want to finish uh, with this. Everyone wants God's blessing. Everyone wants God's blessing. Everyone wants his presence. Especially after a long stretch of desert like Israel had gone through. God's presence was gone. The ark was taken. And now it was coming back. Yes. But we can't short sheet God. 
We can't cut corners with God. We can't go easy with God. God deserves our full obedience in every way. He does want to bless. He just blesses on his terms. He'll bless you for eternity. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You bless your marriage, your kids. Bless you with peace that passes all understanding. With security in your heart. And it comes through Jesus Christ alone. On his terms. Would you stand with me? It's through Jesus. It's through yielding our own way. And in the quietness with your eyes closed. Is God directing your thoughts to something you're doing your own way? Maybe it's an addiction that you're clinging to that you won't release. Maybe it's a wrong relationship. Maybe it's wrong speech or bitterness, a grudge. Maybe it's wrong handling of your finances. Holes you keep digging for yourself. Maybe it's self-righteousness. You're so stuck on yourself being right all the time. Who needs God then? It's on God's terms, people. Would you be willing to relinquish those to embrace Jesus Christ? To give your heart and life to him today? Would you even talk to him for a moment, even right now in the silence, and express, God, I'm willing. Have me. Enough of me. I need Jesus. Would you talk to him even just for a moment right now? Express your heart to him. Would you do that? God, thank you for this account. Thank you for the reminder there's no problem with the ark, just a problem with us. Help us, God, to do things on your terms. Awaken us to dependence on Jesus alone. God, we love you. Love your word. 
keep growing us day by day. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Huh? Yeah, amen.